Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Gianluca Garnabucci, who is Professor of Organizational Behavior at ESMT Berlin. Gianluca's research interests revolve around the analysis of inter- and intra-organizational networks, with particular regard to the generation and recombination of technological knowledge. Welcome, Gianluca. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your earlier papers from 2009, Knowledge specialization, knowledge brokerage, and the uneven growth of technology domains. Uh, you say, why do certain domains of knowledge grow fast while others grow slowly or stagnate? Two distinct theoretical arguments hold that knowledge growth is enhanced by knowledge specialization and knowledge brokerage. So what's the difference between knowledge specialization and knowledge brokerage? All right, so let's start from the beginning. Um, in innovation theory, there basically is uh, the idea that innovations never come out of the blue. They always stem out of recombinations of existing knowledge. And brokerage and specialization really are the polar opposites in the spectrum of how broad this recombination is. So if you think about a brokering, um, recombination that is typically a combination that brings together fields of knowledge that are disparate, that have very little in common with one another before the combination occurs. Whereas specialization really is the opposite. It occurs when the recombinations of ideas, knowledge, methods, tools uh, happen between areas that are very close together. So if you think about uh, really knowledge as a space, brokerage is a recombination of knowledge that is between very distant pieces and uh, specialization really happens between pieces of knowledge that are closely related to one another even before the combination occurs. Yeah, that makes a lot of intuitive sense. So um, as, we, as we look forward, Gianluca, you know, based on your experience, um, 
I, you know, I have worked in pharmaceutical companies and high tech firms in the past. Um, it used to be that a lot of the knowledge is created internally, but it seems to me that now we are in a regime where innovation really happens at the intersection of disciplines rather than deep inside the discipline. Um, we have some foundational technologies that affect everything like artificial intelligence. No industry is immune from it. So, so do you think we are moving more into brokerage being uh, a more of a viable strategy for innovation? The, there is, I'm sorry, I have a, there is a background uh, voice. I don't know where this is coming from. If you could give me one second, I'll try to figure this out. Sorry about this. All right, I think I figured it out. Yeah, I think this is uh, an excellent question, Jill. I, um, I think what we have observed is definitely a trend towards recombinations being more and more distant. And this can, is something that you can see pretty much in all industries, but most certainly in those industries that are heavily knowledge-based, such as the pharmaceutical industry or semiconductors. Now, um, what's important to know here is that the emphasis that we have seen in recent years and decades on, for example, interdisciplinary knowledge, um, that's an emphasis that is justified insofar as many of the real breakthroughs that we have observed in recent years, they do come from uh, interdisciplinary efforts. Artificial intelligence is an example, a case in point, as you just mentioned. There are many others. Now, something that sometimes we don't fully recognize is that this interdisciplinary knowledge is also a lot harder to manage. And so a lot of the, these interdisciplinary efforts that companies or even uh, universities embark on, they actually flop. They don't get you to a point in which you see a valuable output. But those outputs that you do observe are on average more breakthrough, more, more innovative. That's completely correct. Yeah, so if you, if you, so the probability of success is lower. Yeah. But the value of successful innovations are a lot higher. So they are, they are breakthrough innovations. Um, so, so I know that you looked at, you know, sort of a lot of different industries. Do you think industries are gravitating toward different ways of, you know, managing this? And I'm thinking uh, pharmaceuticals and high technology on one spectrum. Uh, perhaps, you know, other industries on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, do you see industries sort of gravitating toward different ways of doing it? Yeah, uh, companies are experimenting. They're trying all kinds of different approaches to try and increase multidisciplinary and more, more generally, they're trying to increase the breadth of knowledge that they're able to draw from. So one of the most interesting innovations from that perspective, from an organizational standpoint, is the notion of crowdsourcing ideas. So that, that's really pretty radical from an organizational standpoint. Now companies, they basically say, there's no way that we have enough knowledge internally to be able to come up with a kind of knowledge combinations that can really help us lead. Uh, we have to open up, and they do in a variety of ways, but the idea of crowdsourcing 
ideas is really perhaps the most radical. You basically throw a problem at the world and you say, hey, why don't you guys, whoever you are, come up with a solution? We'll just give you a platform and some form of incentive. And we're going to be interested in seeing if the solutions that you guys propose can be better than our own solutions. And generally, they are, which is a very interesting discovery, at least for some kinds of, of problems. Uh, crowdsourced uh, ideas are actually pretty powerful. So that's a that's an example of an innovation, something that would have been considered unthinkable uh, not too long back. Yeah, I know, I know that you do a lot of work in the organizational design aspects uh, too. So you mentioned um, brokerage, knowledge brokerage is a more complex process to manage. So there is sort of management competence and organizational structural requirements for that to work, right? So uh, are there aspects of organization structure where um, you, you believe sort of knowledge brokerage uh, is more likely to be successful? You know, one of the things we have learned about brokering knowledge is that organizations typically create structures and processes that um, impede the brokerage of ideas rather than favoring it. Because in a sense, organizations are there precisely in order to create specialization. And so when you start to put or, you know, structures around people, then what happens is that these people become more and more like tribes internally. They become more and more specialized in their own area of expertise. They develop their own jargon and they become more and more insular. Now, one of the interesting discoveries of the kind of research that I and many others in my field do is that actually some of the most interesting forms of knowledge recombination, the long jump combinations that sometimes we observe, they come from individuals who kind of work behind the company chart. They built their own informal networks of connections and through these networks they managed to connect different parts of the organization or sometimes different organizations altogether. Sometimes they'll connect, you know, university players with uh, uh, corporate players. And it's these kind of combinations that, that are very useful at times. But they happen informally. They happen with um, basically what we call network entrepreneurs, people who in a very entrepreneurial fashion try to establish these connections despite the organization, so to speak. Now, this is not to say that the organization can do nothing to favor knowledge progress processes, but it is a fact that organization's main purpose is generally to create specialization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, two, two ideas come to mind, uh, John Look, I, I don't know if this is in the paper, uh, one is sort of the principal agent problem uh, in the enterprise. Uh, managers have a desire to hire more people, expand their fiefdom, so to speak, and any sort of brokerage aspect uh, sort of cut, cuts into it. Uh, so there is a natural, natural resistance <laughs> to that in large companies, as you know. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about is this internal networks that you talk about. Um, if, I think there are ways to graphically sort of look at, you know, interactions between people and so forth. And you can see this very strong nodes inside the organization of people who don't have the titles, uh, but uh, are considered experts who others go to for guidance or for collaboration, right? And so, you know, I did some work in the 90s around this to identify people like this. Uh, but again, uh, I don't know if companies are that interested in that type of thing. What's the, what's the status quo on that? 
<laughs> That's very interesting. I think, um, yeah, companies definitely have become very interested in identifying these key players and more generally, although in the 90s you're completely right, there probably still was a lot of uh, reluctance to even consider the possibility that, you know, you might want to look at what happens behind the company chart in order to see how really things play out. Now, I think that notion is uh, pretty well acquired. There is a whole industry of consultants who use network analytic techniques to try and identify key players, maybe using ideas similar to the ones you were playing with in the 90s. And um, I think this this is now something that companies do. Think about maybe the most established example would be Microsoft. Uh, at Microsoft, there is a very extensive effort to map out um, connections through electronic data uh, among people. Or for obvious reasons, they have access to large uh, sets of data when it comes to electronic traces of interactions across people. And Microsoft, of course, also has uh, a lot of people who come from academia, from my own field, uh, who have helped their own internal uh, think tank to try and develop new models of how these interactions play out and how different structures of interaction might affect um, whatever outcomes of interest, including, of course, uh, innovation. So there is a very recent study that's uh, just been put out there on the web. I don't think it has been published yet in a, an academic journal, but presumably it will be soon. Uh, which is based on a large set of uh, Microsoft um, uh, electronic networks data, where they have examined, you know, how these uh, patterns of interactions uh, among people in a large number of companies, how they have changed through the pandemic. And guess what has happened? Uh, mostly people have uh, reverted back to their own strong ties within their own organizational silo, which basically means all of the structures that typically would enable companies to create these long jump combinations that can lead to technological breakthroughs. Those have been cut down, cut down significantly over the past year and a half or so. Yeah, that, that's sort of unfortunate. I, I want to throw out another thing to get your perspective. So um, retention is a big problem, right? So if you have key players embedded in the organization and senior execs don't really know them, never see them, uh, retaining them <laughs> will be quite difficult. Uh, again, in the, in the early 90s, I did some work in a large high-tech firms on the west coast of the US, where we found that 85% of the organization actually don't do a lot. Um, the company is really driven by 15% of the employees, uh, and many of them are actually unknown to the senior layers of the, of the organization. That's right. And it's a very dangerous position to be in. Um, do you think uh, things have changed? Or I know that COVID might have reverted back to sort of the legacy ideas around this. Yeah, that's another interesting observation. So. Um, I think the proportion that you speak about, you know, 15 versus 85%, I'm not positive about the exact number, but I think roughly there, it's still the case. I think that most, especially when it comes to innovations, uh, most of the valuable innovations tend to come from very few people. There's uh, um, a pretty restricted subset of innovators in most organizations. That doesn't necessarily mean that the other 85% do not contribute to those innovations. 
But certainly it does mean that if you lose that 15%, if they leave to a competitor, you have a problem. Now, interestingly, I have a paper that's, um, we haven't yet submitted it. So we're now working on the first uh, submission just this very weeks where we're looking at what are the chances that these key players, the ones who are able to connect people across very different parts of the organization and therefore are most susceptible to coming up with uh, breakthrough innovations, how likely are they to leave the company as opposed to or com you know, compared to the other, let me say, 85% that you were referring to? And interestingly, Jill, we find that they are less likely to leave, not more likely. And we see, we show in this paper that a main reason why this, let me call them brokers uh, for, you know, so we have a shorthand uh, uh, name for it. These brokers, uh, they tend to stay in their companies more likely than everybody else because most of their social capital is very local. It's been built over time across the silos of their own organization. Sometimes they connect with other organizations as well, but these kind of local structures are really what makes them especially successful. If a broker leaves their company to go to a competitor, they're gonna have to rebuild their network almost entirely. And it is easier to rebuild your network if the kind of network you want to build is one that is just within a single silo, because then you can uh, join another organization, you're going to find a group that's right there for you. And if the socialization process occurs, you know, as it normally does, within a few months, you're integrated. But for brokers, that's a lot more complicated because they're trying to connect uh, individuals, colleagues across separate groups. So it's it's interesting. It's a fascinating environment. In a sense, companies have a hard time identifying the brokers, but they're lucky enough that the brokers tend to stay anyways because their exit options aren't as great as one might imagine. So that's kind of a natural equilibrium. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in a sort of an entrepreneurial world, there's a different dimension, right? Um, so the, the broker doesn't necessarily have to go from X to Y uh, the broker can go start his or her own company, uh, in, in which case it's, it's a little, little different, isn't it? Absolutely. And I cannot bring to bear any data with respect to this question, but my gut feeling, my intuition is that you're right. When it comes to you know generating spin-offs or generating your own company out of your own innovative ideas and your network, then maybe it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, I, I wrote a book in uh, 2009, uh, it's called Flexibility, in which I incorrectly argued companies won't exist in the future <laughs> because transaction costs are coming down. There is no reason for people to get together to form a company because you're basically, um, you know, sort of transacting on expertise. Uh, and there's really no need to go to, you know, concrete jungle, sit in an office and have meetings and so on. Um, but none of those things actually happened uh, till very recently yeah. <laughs> in COVID. Uh, but, but do you think there is a trend toward sort of a more flexible organizations? Um, is there still a need for these large companies to exist? Do they have any advantages? <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, yeah, if one looks at it from a transaction costs perspective, I tend to agree the tendency was and still is to see a 
you know, uh, a disintegration of large corporations. There is really no need for these corporations to be there if you look at the problem from that particular angle. I think organizations, however, provide other forms of value that perhaps aren't entirely captured by uh, transaction costs perspective. For example, they provide a community uh, and sometimes they provide uh, the possibility to scale things up much more rapidly than one could without that corporation. Sometimes they provide complementary assets, so the ability to really deploy, um, say, marketing uh, tools, marketing investments very rapidly when you most need it, which is something for which maybe an entrepreneur on their own means they would have, you know, it would take them a lot of time before they're able to raise the money or whatever else they might need. So I think if we look at the data, what we do observe is there certainly has appeared a new form of very decentralized sort of uh, corporation less type uh, structure, uh, the gig economy or, you know, whatever label you want to give to it, where you see that um, there's a lot of uh, knowledge workers who are now capable of producing value uh, by not relying necessarily on corporate structures. Um, but I don't expect this to ever sort of wipe out entirely uh, the corporate world, you know. One of the, actually probably the only real organizational theorist who won a Nobel Prize, uh, Herb Simon, uh, once said if uh, a Martian would come down to Earth and look at Earth, what they would see is not what economists see, which is a lot of individuals who sometimes go into organizations for unknown reasons. They would see the exact opposite. They would see a lot of organizations and sometimes a few dispersed individuals who are not in an organization. We do tend to need the maybe even simply for the community experience that they provide, organizations are something that we seem to be very affectionate to. And so I don't expect them to be wiped off. Yes, yeah, so scale obviously uh, gives a lot of advantages. Uh, I know that you have done a lot of work in the patent area, and one advantage I can see, um, a Fortune 100 company with a thousand patent lawyers are probably more successful uh, getting a patent <laughs> issued than uh, you know two people getting together and uh, and uh, trying to get a patent right so there are huge scale-based uh, advantages for companies but in some sense in the long run it's somewhat inefficient isn't it i mean do you think uh, large companies create lower quality patents i just want to get your feel for sort of the patent arena yeah, I think there is some evidence that I don't know that we should call those patents coming out of the corporate environments to be lower quality. That's hard to say, but they do tend to be a little less um, radical innovations, a little less revolutionary or breakthrough innovations. So uh, this is definitely a point that we can see in the data. Even the lone inventors who is some what of a myth, to be honest. I mean, we tend to place far more emphasis on the lone inventors than we actually should. But you still see that some of the breakthrough patterns are coming from individuals who are highly creative and they do not work in a corporate environment. So the corporate environment creates structures all, all around you. The benefit is you get scale economies, you get a community, you get resources, you get complementary assets. The drawback is that you get structures and therefore, uh, 
there's a lot of the things that happen at the tail of the innovativeness distribution that get trimmed off in a corporation. Whereas if you have people working more independently, you'll get a lot more flops, but also the occasional breakthroughs. They'll go through it. And so they can actually bring some of those innovative ideas to fruition that wouldn't make it inside a corporate environment. Yeah, I'm thinking, Jendo, uh, two of the you know uh, very successful recent companies, Google and Facebook, uh, happened out of nothing, really. Um, and uh, these companies now have market gaps significantly higher than you know many traditional um, companies that existed for 100 years, right? And so I often wondered, um, you know, the the large uh, oil tankers, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the sea, uh, they're not going to be electric uh, for a long time. You know, it's just going to move at 10 kilometers per per hour. Uh, yeah. Forever. They're not going to be destroyed, uh, but they, they cannot really move fast enough to, to really get to the next level, it seems to me. That, that, that I think is absolutely correct. You know, as you mentioned at uh, the beginning of this conversation, I, I come from Berlin. I live in Berlin. I'm Italian, but I live in Berlin. Um, and in Germany, we have some of those companies that you're referring to. Uh, think about the automotive sector. We have um, Daimler, we have uh, BMW, we have Volkswagen. You know, these are extremely large uh, corporations. Volkswagen, I believe, has something around 700,000 employees globally. So we're talking about really very large companies. Um, these companies produce a lot of innovations, but you would be wrong to assume that they are the ones who are producing the breakthrough combinations. They really aren't. And so you're completely right. And if you look at the automotive sector, just to stay with this example, you'll see that electrification, which is now happening, of course, wasn't spurred by any one of these large companies. It was Tesla that came in, disrupted the market altogether, and forced a very sort of speedy transition into these uh, elephants, which are very powerful animals, but they're still not exactly fast in moving. So you're completely right about this. Yeah, so the speed of innovations. I want to go into another paper, um, the, the ecology of technological progress, how symbiosis and competition affect the growth of technology, technology domains. Uh, you, say we, uh, you say we show the progress of technological knowledge is an inherently ecological process, wherein the growth rate of each technology domain depends on dynamics occurring in other technology domains. And you say we identify two sources of ecological interdependence among technology domains. So, so what do you mean by ecological interdependence? So the idea is quite simply that technologists are never isolated. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're always a combination of something that pre-existed them. And so if you think in terms of the knowledge space, um, it may be a bit of an abstract imagery, but um, if you think in terms of the knowledge space, what you will observe over time is that there are some domains of technology that compete with one another. They start to overlap uh, in terms of uh, the resources that they use, and particularly the kind of knowledge workers that they're attracting. 
and some other uh, technology domains, on the other hand, they sort of help each other out in the sense that when an innovation happens in a focal technology domain, that might actually spur innovations in different technology uh, domains uh, that are around it. Perhaps one example would be electrification, what we just mentioned in the automotive sector. That is certainly not a competitive form of interdependence. The innovations that are happening around electrification, uh, they have the potential to really create, to, you know, a boost in terms of the innovative dynamics that may happen in the automotive sector. Um, so that's one example. But generally speaking, I think this paper and that line of research really looks at how uh, everything is interconnected when we look at the growth of knowledge. Nothing is independent. Yeah, and, and the problem becomes even more um, intense when you have sort of foundational technologies, right? I'm thinking uh, automation slash electrification, artificial intelligence. Yeah. There's no industry that is you know, not affected by this foundational stuff, uh, in which case uh, it has an effect to tie things together in some way, right? That's exactly right. So the technical terms for the kind of uh, technologies you're talking about is general purpose technology. And so the, the sort of the canonical example from history would be electricity. Uh, but also the examples that you just brought uh, to bear, you know, the more recent ones, uh, automation, um, those are examples of general purpose technology. And they do exactly what you said. They connect uh, technology domains that were once very separate from one another. They bring them closer together. They create possibilities for new recombinations across them. So that's exactly what they do. Again, if we go back to the imagery of the knowledge space, what they'll do is they'll reduce the diameter of that knowledge space. They'll shrink it so that everything gets closer together. Yeah, so, so I do some work in AI, look, uh, and, and one of the, uh, I see a phenomenon, and I want to get your perspective on this, um, it, it's sort of going in the other direction. So, you know, you, you, could, you could have a lot of expertise in AI, but you are really unable to influence business unless you have other expertise. Uh, so, you know, significant domain expertise. If you're thinking about healthcare or pharmaceuticals, it's not like an AI expert can go in and change the industry, right? Yeah. You need to really understand the industry deeply. So there's, there's a huge domain expertise requirement. Uh, and then there is, you know, sort of technology uh, needs. So I see companies sort of specializing in technology. So, you know, companies will go in and say, we got great technology. Uh, tell us what your problem is. Uh, I see uh, companies specializing in machine learning, artificial intelligence, which is in analytics. Uh, specialization, and then we have domain expertise. Um, so oftentimes, if you don't bring these three things together, it, it seems from a practical perspective, you get much less value. That's exactly correct. This is precisely correct. And the translation, or let me say the glue between these three elements is extremely hard to make. So when the first computers came into you know, uh, the industry, they came to occupy important pieces of uh, how companies invested their money. Uh, there was this productivity puzzle, as the economists used to call it. How is it that we see a general purpose technology such as, you know, uh, IT, computers, basically, uh, 
being integrated in companies' companies operations. And yet, when we look at productivity numbers, the gains are very limited. It's really very hard to even see them. And actually, this is nothing new. Even with electricity, that's what we have observed. When a general purpose technology kicks in and is technologically very solid and usable, that doesn't per se create any productivity advantages because the translation into the daily life of organizations, you know, making it real for the people who work in organizations and then finally for the customers, that's an extremely lengthy process that does require domain knowledge, and it requires also an ability to really integrate these different elements together. That in itself is a is a competence that is very hard to develop. Yeah, so I have seen some charts, uh, Jay Lucas. So you talked about electricity, computers, uh, uh, internet, more recently artificial intelligence. There's some chart, right, that sort of adoption, and then you get sort of a hype cycle, and then you know, people sort of <laughs> lose hope, things come down, and then slowly uh, yeah. you, you get things working. That's right, yeah. So uh, this is a diffusion uh, pattern that we understand very well. And so, yes, there are the early adopters, and then the technology gets into a maturity stage, and then ultimately the latecomers will pick it up, and uh, it, uh, the technology will become established uh, across the board. Yeah, that's the, the general pattern that you observe overall. Now, the, to me, the most interesting piece is the micro-level dynamics that make up for that macro-trend. The micro-trend is always the same, but in the micro-level dynamics, there's really, you know, that's exactly where technological competition occurs. That's exactly when a company can sort of wipe off a market because they move a little bit earlier or because they're a little quicker in understanding how this, this uh, early adopters can, can really sort of shape up a whole new industry. And so it's uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurial thinking, there's a lot of risk-taking, there's a lot of creativity that happens uh, behind that very neutral diffusion chart that we're, you know, used to looking at. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a microstructure underneath. Uh, so going back to sort of the organizational structure question, um, given that we we understand really the value of the firm is driven by innovation fundamentally, uh, you, you know the the rate of innovation and so on. Uh, are there more amenable organizational structures um, that that you know uh, for companies to become successful, more successful in the future? Yeah, I think the tendency that we have observed historically, and in my view, this is not over yet, is a clear tendency towards delaying, flattening of organizations and making organizations more, we say, boundary-less. Meaning that organizations, as we said before, do have a tendency to create structures and processes that are hyper-specialized. But if we're able to somehow counterbalance that inertial tendency that organizations do have and create structures and processes that, you know, that increase the permeability of those structures and processes. Now, those um, organizations that are able to do this, they'll be a little less efficient, but a little more creative. And in the long run, I think that's where the competition uh, really is going to be won. It's uh, unlikely to be won uh, in terms of maximizing efficiency, the more we move towards being knowledge-based, the more we move towards being uh, innovation-based, the more we should be able to give up some of the efficiency gains that we see in traditional organizations in exchange for a little bit more creativity and the occasional breakthrough uh, 
uh, you know, boost in company innovation? Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit counterintuitive. I, I want to get your perspective on this. So, the the lack of efficiency that you talk about, some of it could be mitigated by standardization. So it, it's almost like to become more innovative at flat and and flexible, you almost need standardization. It, it's just, it's sort of a counterintuitive uh, feel to it, right? Yeah, <clears throat> I think. Without getting too much into technical jargon, but I do need to introduce here a distinction. Um, I think you're exactly right when it comes to what we call uh, modular innovations. But a lot of the innovations that we need in order to succeed are, we say, architectural innovations. So they bring together uh, different technological modules in different ways. So, um, and so in technology, when you look at the growth of technological knowledge, there always are these two different dimensions where a lot of uh, innovations happen within technological modules that can be standardized in the way that they operate. But then at some point, you'll need architectural innovations to come in in order to create new links, new configurations between these modules. And those things can hardly be standardized. What you can try to do, of course, is to work on optimizing the interfaces between the modules so that in, within the modules, you can actually work um, in, the, in an efficient way, even though you're trying to really innovate, innovate very quickly. Yeah, I really like that. So, so the, sort of the modular design. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, just like an automobile or a computer, companies have to also think about maintenance <laughs> because things are changing quite dramatically. So so if you, if you have sort of, you know, um, not a very well designed interface, when things change, you have to basically start over again. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think the history of technology, at least when it comes to economic history of technology, shows that even the largest, most successful corporations will break down uh, because they are unable to manage this uh, architectural innovations. Those are really hard to manage for everybody, but especially for successful uh, corporate incumbents who have developed already very well established ways of working uh, with a particular architectural configuration and they're very uh, resistant to changing those architectural configurations. They don't even notice in a lot of cases that a change is needed in the first place. It's too late, yeah. So, so you have another paper that's sort of related, uh, social networks, cognitive style and innovative performance, a contingency perspective. So you say integrating insights from cognitive psychology into current network theory on the social capital of brokering and close networks, we argue that cognitive style is a critical contingency explaining the relation between social network position and innovative performance. So uh, this is sort of social network position of organizations, right? When we look out into the macro economy. No, in this particular case, this is a paper where I really will look at the micro-level networks of individuals. Unlike some of the previous papers that you have pointed out, this is really a micro-paper. We're looking at the kind of networks that individuals form inside 
their organization. And we're looking at the kind of information processing style that each of the individual, these individuals has. And what we find is essentially a couple of really interesting findings, I think at least. One is that, so first of all, in terms of information processing styles or cognitive styles, we all belong to one of two different uh, styles. There are what we call adapters, who are individuals who tend to process information with an eye to how they can solve problems uh, efficiently, methodically, within the established paradigms. At the opposite end of the spectrum, there are going to be people who uh, are called in the cognitive science literature innovators, unfortunately, so that creates a bit of a confusion now, but they are called innovators and these individuals have a tendency just because, just, you know, related to how their brain operates, to take whatever information comes at them and rather than thinking about how can I solve a problem with that information, they'll think about how can I reframe the problem that I'm facing. And so these are, of course, sort of the two extremes, and a lot of us are somewhere in the middle of these two extremes. But once we understand that people differ along this dimension, how they process information when they're trying to solve problems, we'll also understand that the kind of network structure you build around yourself will affect you differently depending on your cognitive style. Most people, prior to the study that you're referring, thought that if you are in a brokerage network, which basically means if you are one of those individuals who is connecting uh, colleagues across the silos of the organization, very different areas of the organization, if you're one of those people, you'll be more innovative. And this is still true. We find that too in our paper. On average, that's what happens. But in our paper, we also show that there is a contingency mechanism here. This effect gets reversed for the innovators. If you are an innovator, it is actually better for you to be embedded in a network that's completely closed around you. Why? Because disclosure helps you use your innovative ideas, your innate creativity in a way that actually gets you down to implementing that creativity and transform it into something that's valuable for the organization. But the more you are towards the adaptive side of the spectrum, the more you really truly need an open network that connects you outside, or otherwise you'll become just somebody who methodically solves the same problems in the same way over and over again, and your creativity is gonna uh, basically dry out very soon. Yeah, so, so I, I want to go on a, on a tangent a little bit. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I have seen some neuroscience, um, neurology, you know, sort of scans um, uh, of, you know, people's decision processes. And it appears that there are sort of two different, you know, sort of decision processes. So things, you know, where things light up are different uh, for, let's call it, uh, group X and group Y. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there, there's some um, commonality between, they call the conservative brain and the liberal brain in the US, for example. Um, so, so, so if you have these types of hardware variations, is it likely that, so going back to your example, the innovator is better off in an organization that's sort of constrained, but the innovator would be sort of bored potentially in there because he or she cannot find other innovators you know, to, to do things. To. So will they gravitate toward their kind, so to speak, and, and not in the other direction? Yeah, they will. They definitely will. 
And that's another working paper that is close to submission at this point. That's exactly what we show. Uh, so your intuition is completely correct. What you what we find is that innovators, they have a tendency to build networks that are different from the ones they need in, in the sense that they their tendency is to look for other innovators and to look for colleagues who give them diversity of information because that's their natural element. Um, and so you're exactly right. Now, but there is a limit to how much that kind of network can give an innovator benefits. Because if you're somebody who, by your own natural inclination, you tend to frame and reframe and reframe problems so that you see the big picture and you see new possible connections and you see yet another possible dot that could be connected. But you're never brought down to the you know, point at which you actually close things off and say, all right, that great idea, let me now convert it into something that makes sense for my organization, that makes sense for my group, that can be implemented, and that also, you know, can be evaluated positively by my supervisor, by my, you know, CFO, whoever that's going to be. If you don't make that step, you're going to keep having a lot of great ideas which are going to float in air. So yeah, these innovators often do construct uh, an environment around themselves that um, is pleasant to be in. It's their natural environment, but it doesn't necessarily create that complementarity of uh, strengths that they would need in order to be most effective. Yeah, and, and I guess adopters uh, are also like that, right? So they will gravitate toward more uh, adopted uh, cognitive styles. And uh, this might be a problem for large enterprises uh, where hiring decisions and you know sort of the scale up the scale up of the company is almost like uh, bricks in the wall. You know they, they look for the same type of people. That's exactly right. And to be completely fair, uh, what we see is that when uh, adapters uh, do what you said and they. Just like innovators, they make the same mistake. They tend to surround themselves with people of, uh, who are similar to them, and they tend to create networks around themselves, which they feel well within those networks, but they don't give them the sort of complementary resources that they need. When adapters do that, their performance, their ability to come up with novel ideas that are valuable for the company, they, it really shrinks to close to zero. So it's better to have an innovator who builds the wrong network rather than an adapter who builds the wrong network. But the best of all, the most, you know, the best performing uh, profiles are the innovators who understand I've got to create a structure around myself that enables me to make this conversion, you know, the idea implementation conversion process. Right, right. So, so I want to touch on another, a more recent paper, uh, risky recombinations, institutional gatekeeping, in the innovation process. Um, you said theories of innovation and technical change posit that in inventions that combine knowledge across technical or technology domains have greater impact than inventions drawn from a single domain. So we talked about that already. Yeah. The evidence for this claim comes mostly from research on patented inventions and ignores failed patent uh, applications. Yeah. And so what do we find in this uh, large data set of patents? Seems quite interesting. Absolutely. This speaks to the question that we started out with, as a matter of fact, the question of interdisciplinarity. And in this paper with uh, my colleague and friend JP Ferguson, we look at um, 
uh, interdisciplinarity, if you wish, in the context of technological knowledge. And basically, you know, uh, what we find is that, yes, it is true that interdisciplinary innovations, the innovations that bring together distant technology domains uh, are on average more impactful. There is a greater chance that they'll create the occasional breakthrough. But something that people haven't really fully recognized and that we show uh, compellingly, I think, in this paper is that this same kind of interdisciplinary innovations are also far more likely to fail. And so part of the reason why we see that uh, this, you know, uh, this patents that combine distant technology domains are so impactful is also that there is a differential selection process, which basically means the recombinant patent, the patents that combine very different domains that do make it to a patent, those have passed a much higher threshold during the patenting uh, process. And by the time that they are granted, they basically are in the right-hand distribution of the quality, in the right-hand tail of the quality distribution. So another way to say this, perhaps more, more you know, in simpler terms, is because most of the interdisciplinary innovations fail, the few ones that succeed and do become a patent are not just more diverse than the average uh, innovations, they are also higher quality. And so in this paper, we're trying to disentangle these two effects. And we're basically saying, look, we're somewhat overestimating the importance of long jump combinations between very distant domains. Part of the reason that we see that those uh, uh, interdisciplinary innovations are so successful is that those are the best uh, of the interdisciplinary combinations. All of the ones that were not so great, they were basically blocked at the patenting process stage. They never even made it to a, to a, to, to a patent because the patent office is a lot more tough. It's a lot tougher on interdisciplinary uh, innovations than on monodisciplinary innovations. Yes, yeah, so, so I wonder, is there some sort of policy implications here? So. Uh, is the patent approval process, uh, does it really have to think about this more systematically? Uh, you know, they, I can see uh, this sort of long jump uh, innovations. Uh, it has to talk about two distinctly disparate domains um, uh, existing art in both of those domains. In other words, it gives the patent examiner a lot more ways to cut it off or shut it down. Um, so, so I wondered from a policy perspective, uh, you know, this has some implications. Yeah, that's that's the first implication here would be to think in terms of policy. What could we do to, let me say, reform part of the way that the patent office operates to try and make it more accommodating for inventions that are uh, cross-disciplinary, that combine very, diff very different technology domains. Frankly, there is no easy answer, however, as to what would be the solution. Uh, after our paper was published, there was another paper that basically did a similar test, uh, but now looking at research grant applications, and they basically found the exact same thing. All of these granting institutions, even those that um, explicitly promote cross-disciplinary research, when they receive cross-disciplinary applications, 
they find it very hard to evaluate the quality of those applications. It's just harder. And therefore, chances of uh, rejection are higher for cross-disciplinary applications than they are for monodisciplinary applications. I think the solution is likely to be in trying to create uh, specific parts of the patent office that are specifically designed to process cross-disciplinary uh, patent applications. And in that way, creating not just uh, you know, like claims that we are in favor of cross-disciplinary combinations, but rather really structures and processes that do justice to those uh, inventions. Currently, the way that this works is that if uh, a patent is um, cross-disciplinary, uh, it still is sent to an office, a pro you know, an art unit, to use the terminology of the U.S. Patent Office, that is specialized in a particular domain. Now, the people in that art unit will make contact with other people in different art units which have the relevant competence. But here we are already talking about people from different silos of one organization, the USPO, USPDO, having to collaborate with one another. And we all know that's not exactly easy. So that's really part of the problem here. Yeah, we need more Einsteins in the patent <laughs> office, I think. <laughs> um, or like you say, so, I mean, if you set out to create a new type of patent office, uh, perhaps the examiner's training, examiner's background, all of those become quite important. We need a multidisciplinary patent examiner, right, uh, if such people exist. Uh, so it's not just a structural problem, it's also sort of a human resource problem to make it work. I think it is. I think it is. And, you know, my comment really wasn't meant as a criticism to the SPDO. I think there are extremely competent patent examiners uh, in that organization. Similarly, we have extremely competent patent examiners in the EPO. It truly is, as you said, it's a, it's a, it's a problem that has to do with uh, the fact that uh, people's minds they you, if you want people to be good at something you have them you have to let them specialize into that thing and so it's not easy to have einsteins all over the place it's a, a kind of a rare event and so i think we can we, we can and should do better at processing cross disciplinary uh, inventions or cross disciplinary academic research but there isn't a sort of a silver bullet yet that we can think about. Maybe it's a combination of things. Maybe it's about, you know, creating particular offices that are devoted to uh, processing that kind of cross-disciplinary applications and at the same time creating maybe slightly different criteria for evaluating them relative to the monodisciplinary uh, applications. Right, right. Um, I was also just quickly thinking that some sort of a peer review process um, in the patenting uh, arena. I don't know if you know something like that could actually make it more efficient. Uh, peer reviewing process similar to what happens in academia. Is that what you mean? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, the problem that I see there is that uh, there are real interests here which are different from what you would see in academia, right? So a patent is often, it's an intellectual property right, and companies do strive to have control over those things. And so where would these peers come from? If they come from the competition, then you're setting up a very strong incentive to kill the patents or delay them <laughs> until your own company uh, has, uh, you know, maybe can replace those inventions with their own patents. And so 
I think in practical terms, it might be a little bit more problematic, but I think I like the idea of thinking creatively about should we rethink some of these processes from, you know, like the very basis of how we organize them. Yeah, yeah. So I want to finish up with your recent papers, categories, attention, and the impact of inventions. Uh, you say there are prior innovation and strategy literature studied how attentional and search dynamics influence the creation of inventions. We examine how these same processes affect the impact of inventions after their creation. So search dynamics um, after uh, innovations. Um, so so how, what we find here, this is again, you're going to the USPTO data. Yeah. No, we're using actually, uh, yeah, mainly, mainly it is patent data. So without getting into the details of it, we're using a combination of patent data sets, but um, uh, certainly we also use the USPDO once. And the basic idea of this paper is the impact of a patent doesn't only depend on how creative, innovative that patent is from a technical standpoint. Uh, it also depends on what are the chances that future inventors, other companies, other inventors in your field or in other fields will actually even become aware of the existence of that particular invention. And this problem is now a problem that we need to tackle because the, think only about the, the patent stock. We're talking about millions and millions and millions of patents that are out there. And it's essentially impossible for even the most, uh, you know, educated of the engineers to keep track of what's really going on in even your field. There are, there's far too much knowledge that is being generated. So the question is, what are the chances that a particular invention that's been created and patented actually gets the attention of potential users, other inventors who could build on that idea? And that's the angle we're taking in this, in this paper. And we're basically saying, if we take the same identical invention and we do exactly that in our empirical test, we're using patent twins. So the very same invention being patented in two different patent offices. If we take the exact same invention, so these are there's nothing different between them from a technical standpoint. Um, what are the chances that this same invention becomes a break or becomes impactful in, in one patent office relative to another. And we're seeing that actually the inventions that are more likely to become impactful are inventions that are classified in technological categories that are very clear, very distinct. So once again, this speaks against, in a sense, it speaks about the challenges of multidisciplinarity. If a patent falls in the crack between established categories, it is less likely to be found by future inventors. And so no matter how good it is, they're less likely to use it and build on it and extend it and create a technological trajectory out of it. And that's essentially what we show in this paper. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was just thinking as we were talking, um, I see some AI applications here, unsupervised machine learning applications, um, either to complement patent examiners um, uh, or, you know, or maybe one could argue at some point that the patent office could be completely eliminated by an, an AI agent, um, you know, which which uh, which is potentially possible. Uh, but going into the um, uh, going into the the information that's out there, I wonder if there are uh, again AI applications 
that can seek and search uh, you know, large amounts of information, uh, unlike a human. So given an objective, you can turn an AI agent on to go look for information. Uh, I suspect the technologies are there now for those types of things. I think that's that's uh, that's a very interesting idea, and I I wouldn't be surprised if this is how things play out in the end. Because the key problem we have as human searches really is our attention, our cognitive limits are very restricted. But of course, if you put a bit machine to work on this, then you know even the very fact that um, inventions are organized in particular technological categories that may start to become less relevant altogether because these machines, they could actually go and look at each individual patent, looking at the content of it. And so it doesn't really matter where the, the patent gets placed in the classification system or how clearly defined is the class, you know, the class in which it is, it has been placed. You can look directly at the content of the information, of the invention itself. So maybe that is a, uh, uh, um, something to be hopeful about uh, in the future. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, such an innovation is uh, helpful for the economy broadly. Uh, it's really information dissemination and really making information more valuable to society. So I would imagine governments have an incentive to create something like this, right? So, you know, so sort of the, the, the plain vanilla search mechanisms are not really, I mean, if I go to USPTO, I can do plain searches it's not really that efficient, not that useful, but perhaps there is more sophisticated search mechanisms that maybe USPTO or other you know, government organizations could implement. Yeah, I agree, I agree. Uh, this is gonna be an interesting um, question to explore because think about what you see currently in uh, a completely different environment, say social media. They are two of these organizations, that's what they do. They'll uh, search the um, you know, electronic space, whatever that might be. And they'll present information that according to an algorithm, according to a machine, is most relevant to you, given your interests, given your objectives. So you could imagine doing something similar in the technological information space, maybe even in the patent space. But you would also get, presumably, the same kind of drawbacks that we see in the social media environment, which is ultimately the fact that we keep receiving information that's closely related to our own interests, ultimately creates this silos, this uh, echo chamber effects. So one could imagine if the machine works in a similar way as these algorithms in the social media space, and I would imagine that's a you know sort of an obvious place to start, then a potential drawback is that you would then expose inventors to an information environment that's too close to what they really, you know, that's too close to them. We want inventors to always also be exposed to the serendipitous long jump combination so that we can actually make uh, breakthrough uh, connections that wouldn't be possible otherwise. Yeah, yeah. The echo chamber issue <laughs> is, is a real issue uh, in the social networks. So, so I want to uh, conclude um, uh, with asking you, um, innovation is a really useful thing. Uh, it is useful for society, it enhances value for everybody. So to increase innovation in society more broadly, what are the sort of the policy levers that you see? What are the actions that governments can take 
to sort of, let's say, supercharge innovation? Uh, here, because we're ending this conversation, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, use the opportunity to give you my very biased pers perspective <laughs> on this. I know you mentioned at the beginning of this, uh, of this chat that um, I am interested in the role of networks, and I truly am. And I think innovations wouldn't happen uh, without networks of people connecting with one another and creating uh, channels of communication uh, that uh, get you out of your local environment and that connect you to a local, you know, to somebody else's local environment, to environments that are very far from yours. And so I think governments um, have definitely understood you know the role of many other factors that are important for innovation education and many other very important things sometimes i feel we can do more in terms of really leveraging the potential of this far-reaching networks so uh, creating opportunities for scientists for inventors but even for the layperson to just be exposed to interactions connections that are very far from your local environment that's something that we should foster and so in that sense that you know the tendency that we see in social media to create the very opposite with this uh, eco chambers where people basically immerse themselves in environments where everybody thinks just like you. Those are the killers of innovation. We should really try to imagine ways to foster uh, interactions between people of very different um, kinds and very different in, in in all kinds of senses from one another. Yeah, so I mean, uh, we have 8.4 billion people in more than 200 different countries. Um, the optimum solution is to connect all 8.4 billion, but we have, you know, sort of highly segmented <laughs> um, structure. Um, so do you see some sort of a role for United Nations or some sort of transnational entity to, uh, you know, for example, could we have an innovation organization that is, you know, really focused on the world connectivity yeah. rather than inside. I think that's a great idea. And I think uh, my answer would definitely be positive. We certainly do have, you know, like uh, non-governmental uh, organizations that try to um, go in that direction. But I think your point is broader. I think you're basically saying should we have even political institutions that are devoted to this? And the answer is definitely yes. I mean, think about what uh, the, the Gates Foundation has been able to do with respect to importing and adapting technologies that are completely well established in the first world and bringing those to places in Africa that really needed it so bad. And that is an innovation process because it's got to do with, you know, applying technologies that we already understand to contexts that are completely different. But the impact of those innovations is larger than you can ever achieve by just staying focused on only the first world. So absolutely, yes, connecting people, connecting needs, demand, you know, demand and supply, uh, connecting ideas um, across the globe, that is something that I think should be in part of the institutional mandate of some of our transnational uh, political institutions. Excellent. Yeah. Jean Luc, uh, this has been great. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.
This is a scientific sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info@scientificsense.com.